they say diamonds are forever. But is that really true? That said, it is true that some have been known to last a very long time. Sometimes going through some rather unexpected transformations. The blue diamond is one of those. Its incredible tale is the stuff of legend and myth. You're listening to The Voice of Jewels, a podcast from L'Ecole School of Jewelry Arts, supported by Van Cleef and Arpels, unveiling the stories and secrets behind history's most fascinating jewels. Our journey takes us around the world, from the Indian Empire to King Louis XIV's court in Versailles. A plum-sized diamond of a bewitching blue hue. A diamond straight out of the Arabian Nights. It induced great desire as it appeared and disappeared. It is one of the world's most famous diamonds, as well as probably the most intriguing. It changed the lives of all those who wanted to get near it, including that of Jean-Baptiste Tavernier, the man who discovered it. Tavernier is an adventurer from King Louis XIV's era, an Indiana Jones of gemstones, so to speak. His story takes us to the legendary Blue Diamond's beginnings. A slightly hunched-over short man steps out of the carriage. He takes a quick glance around. The Versailles Castle is under construction. The Great Waterworks Show was just completed, but it is wintertime and the fountains are not in use. The man trudges along, as if he just got back from a long journey. But the clothes he is sporting make him stand out, as they are unlike any other. A Far Eastern style that matches his oversized, brightly colored turban. Jean-Baptiste Tavernier is actually French, as he was born in Paris in 1605. He is an adventurer like no other in France. Back from a four-year journey, he has traveled amazing distances by land and by sea. He is at the top of his game. And today, he is about to meet the King of France. Well, Tavernier was indeed a great adventurer who fascinates me. Cécile Lugon, doctor in art history, author of a thesis on Jean-Baptiste Tavernier. I think that he started his adventures because he was, first of all, passionate about the idea of traveling. He has decided also to build the entire idea of itinerant trading in order to finance his passion for the travel. As he walks into the Grand Salon, Tavernier is greeted by a valet who asks him to wait there. Surrounded by all the beauty of Versailles, he knows for certain that he is at a turning point in his career. Louis XIV might not be known as a formidable tyrant, and Tavernier might be experienced in dealing with the rich and the powerful, but will what he is about to show the king be enough to satisfy him? A king never appears alone. In full regalia, King Louis XIV walks gracefully towards Tavernier, accompanied by several ministers and courtesans. Colbert is there, of course, and so is Sire Piton, the king's appointed jeweler who made the hearing possible. Tavernier smiles. Louis XIV had a taste for diamonds, which he inherited from different sources. Paul Paradis, art historian and lecturer at L'Ecole, School of Jewelry Arts. 
They did not belong to the king or the queen. They belonged to the institution of the crown. So Louis XIV, he, in some ways, he inherited, of course, this tradition. And uh, when he was a child, his mother uh, had a huge collection of pearls and Autriche and his godfather, Mazarin, was a great collector of diamonds. He had purchased many diamonds from the jewels of the crown of England. And these 18 Mazarin diamonds, he left them to Louis XIV in his will. I believe that Louis XIV understood the power of diamonds and there were many um, sort of, let's say, stories about he wore the diamonds, he wore them in public. Saint-Simon was one of the great uh, sort of uh, chronicers. And he said the king came into the gallery, his outfit was covered with diamonds, and he was they were so heavy that he was bending under their weight. Tavernier eagerly shares a very detailed account of his adventures. The man is a natural-born storyteller, so his tales are nothing short of captivating. He describes Smyrna's splendors, and its velvet castle, and Mount Ararat's majesty. He tells of the endless camel trains across the desert, the stifling heat in Bandar Abbas, and the hazardous crossing of the Persian Gulf. He goes on to describe India, the brick buildings of Surat, and the beautiful Delhi palace of the great Mughal, an Asian monarch like no other. Tavernier sold pearls he had bought in Persia, which allowed him to attend elegant parties he would have never witnessed otherwise until he discovered Versailles and its wonders. Tavernier undoubtedly has a way with the powerful of this world. All who cross his path fall under his spell, and Louis XIV is no exception. The king listens to his guests' tales with much interest and asks him questions. Tavernier feels relieved. All he needs to do now is show the purpose of his visit. Tavernier's business is very, um, I'd say, particular because when he leaves Paris, he had constituted a cargo which was constituted of different kinds of objects, whether they were tableware, timepieces, or even mirrors, for instance. And then um, before traveling to, before starting his entire trip, which will lead him to India, he knew where he would stop which means that he knew that he would uh, sell, for instance, a mirror in Persia. And then in Persia, he would, for instance, also, uh, he would purchase some pearls because the pearls were very uh, in great vogue in India. Great Mughals, they used to love pearls. And then after having sold his pearls in India, he would have the money to buy diamonds. And diamonds was in great vogue in Europe back in those times because deputies, they knew how to cut them properly and make them brilliant. And diamonds were very easy to trade also because they were very small, of small size, so easy to carry on during his trip back to Europe. And it was also a great value in Europe. Two of Tavernier's men carry a huge, heavy casket to the salon, then open it. Its contents cause sheer amazement. Colbert looks away. Piton cannot believe his eyes. Louis XIV is looking at thousands of gemstones, like those described in the tales of the Arabian Nights. India is famous for its abundance of astonishing gems, but this goes beyond anyone's imagination. It is as though the sun were shining from within the castle. Where on earth did you find such a treasure? asks Colbert. In Golconda, my lord, replies Tavernier. That is where Tavernier sources all his treasures. 
That is where he made a fortune and built many friendships. He personally knows the miners who come to show him their finest finds wrapped in their turbans. The Golcon mines are still renowned today for having um, uh, given one of the most beautiful diamonds in the world. During the 17th century, we have to keep in mind that uh, when Tavani started to uh, travel and to build his entire business, his entire itinerant trading, the Golcon mine were uh, one of the only one uh, diamond deposits in the world. So Taverny knew that it could create a very interesting business. And also because the diamonds were very well-known and cherished in Europe and more especially in France, where jewelry was also well-developed because we knew how to cut properly diamonds. However, this diamond-filled box is just a sample of what Tavernier has up his sleeve. As a talented merchant, Tavernier wraps up his show for the king with what he feels is the most impressive gem of his entire collection, his masterpiece. Your majesty will most likely like this one. Its color is made for you. Tavernier unfolds a small fabric wrap. The gem twinkles like a comet in the night sky. He holds the gem out to the sunlight. Its radiant blue sparkles are a dazzling sight to see. The gemstone is as big as a quail's egg. Its cut is irregular, as if the stone had been carved straight out of the brightest blue sky. This gem is certainly fit for the Sun King. Strangely enough, the king doesn't seem as impressed as expected. The moguls were looking for colorless diamonds. We know this from the diamonds they selected. Moguls had the right to purchase or confiscate the diamonds above a certain amount of carats. They had the first choice before the diamonds were passed on to merchants like Tavernier. And we can only surmise that the fact that this large diamond, 115 carats, this is huge, even today's standards, blue, the fact that it was passed on to him and he was able to sell it is, might be linked to this fact that blue is not their favorite color. There's a Vedic tradition, uh, there's a mythology in Indian tradition um, that talks about a demon who's shot down from the heavens by the, the gods and his body disintegrates as it falls to earth and his parts of his body transform into different stones. So his teeth become pearls, his eyes become sapphires. And as the he's falling, the planets decide to get their share. So different planets take different stones. So Mercury takes the emerald, Jupiter the topaz. And what's important is Saturn takes the sapphire. So no, it's not a diamond, but it's blue. And as you know, Saturn is not a positive planet in the Indian tradition. It's uh, It can be considered evil influence. And it's most likely the case that because the diamond was blue, that Tavernier was able to acquire it. It's the largest blue diamond even to, to today's standards. So that he was able to acquire it in the 17th century and bring it to the king is quite extraordinary. Where does this diamond come from? Asks the king. That is a secret, your majesty, replies the merchant. Why is its cut irregular? This is an Indian style cut, your majesty. Why won't it shine more brightly? We could do a much better job, replies Piton, mesmerized at the sight of the gem he takes in his hand. I will make it shine and sparkle more than any other stone has ever shown before. It will stand as a pure symbol of your power. 
however long it might take us, we will make this stone shine as brightly as the sun for you. The Indian cut uh, is quite different from the European one back in these times because in India, people would prefer diamonds of great size, which means that they would prefer not to cut them in order to keep them as rough as possible. And in Europe, it's very different because in this, during the 17th century, we started to properly cut the diamonds to make them shine, to make them brilliant, which means that European people were ready to lose weight uh, on diamonds by uh, the cutting technique. Satisfied, the king asks Colbert to handle the financial details. Louis XIV hands the stone back to Jean Piton, the crown's diamond dealer. This is the beginning of a new adventure for the gem, as well as for Jean-Baptiste Vanier. In 1671, after three years of relentless work, Jean Piton puts a gemstone beyond compare into the king's hands. The diamond is a deep shade of blue, cut to perfection, with a seven-pointed star glimmering from its center thanks to an optical illusion tour de force. It looks like the sun in a blue sky. Its light seems to turn on and off depending on how it is rotated and from which angle it is examined. It is the ultimate symbol of a king's power and glorious reign over his subjects. The blue diamond of the French crown has a very specific cut because when the diamond was shining, we could see sun shining in the diamond itself. And it's full of symbolism because this diamond was cut in order to be worn and exhibited by the Sun King which means that inside the diamond you had the sun and it was for the sun king. And we have also to keep in mind that this diamond was blue, which is the color of the French monarchy. So this diamond has become actually a full symbol of power for the sun king, who was fascinating people in Europe and also in the entire world. The sun king holds the jewel in his hands for special occasions. Being given an opportunity to see its sparkle is the ultimate privilege. But this diamond, which was supposed to remain the king of all the crown's jewels forever, is about to embark on many more extraordinary adventures. Voice of Jewels is a podcast from L'Ecole, School of Jewelry Arts, supported by Van Cleef and Arpels, with Cécile Lugon, doctor in art history, author of a thesis on Jean-Baptiste Tavernier, and Paul Paradis, art historian and lecturer at L'Ecole, School of Jewelry Arts, written by Martin Quenéon and Aram Kebagion, performed by Eduardo Ballerini and produced by Bababam. <laughs>